This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Algiers, the 9th of October, 1800. Sir, I have read your letter of this day, stating the arbitrary demand of the day of Algiers. As this business was in agitation some days past, my orders being then made known to the despotic day, and every possible argument made use of both by you and myself, pointing out the impossibility of such a compliance on our part, those reasons stated to him, and the arrival of a British 24-gun ship, who has offered to carry his ambassador in presence, I was in hopes would have relieved me from the truly unpleasant situation I find myself in. Bound by the orders of my government on one hand, and viewing the lots of property and slavery of our citizens on the other, brings me in a dilemma that none can express but those who feel it. I now reply as I have verbally done, that I cannot accede to this demand voluntarily. Your long experience of the government of this Regency leaves you a more competent judge than I can possibly be of the event that would occur if the ship under my command did not proceed as demanded. You will be pleased to state your opinion fully and make the requisition in behalf of the United States for the compliance of said demand. Sir, I cannot help observing the event of this day makes me ponder on the words Independent United States. This letter from Captain William Bainbridge to the U.S. Consul in Algiers, Richard O'Brien, reflects the growing untenable situation for American naval forces and merchants in the Mediterranean at the end of 1800. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Neil Cooper of the Assassinations Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. As with this podcast, Neil looks into the stories of people who are well-known in the annals of history, as well as others that may not be quite as familiar to the general public. From kings and queens to spies and journalists, check out the Assassinations Podcast to learn the details of the untimely demise of individuals from around the world and in various times in history. It can be found at Assassinations Podcast all one word, dot com. Or search for Assassinations Podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found. I'll have a link available on social media and in the source notes page for this episode. As discussed in episode 2.18, U.S. Minister to Prussia John Quincy Adams had already sent back warnings to the U.S. that he felt that unless the Adams administration changed its policy of paying tribute to the Barbary powers in North Africa, they would be met by demands of more tribute in the future. In October 1800, John Quincy's concerns were substantiated. Captain William Bainbridge sailed the frigate USS George Washington into the port of Algiers with gifts for Algerine Dey Mustafa VI Ben Abrahim. The Dey received the gifts without a problem, but, quote, then ordered Bainbridge to reload his vessel with tribute goods that Algiers owed Ottoman Sultan Selim III and sail the tribute, quote, to Constantinople under the Algerine flag. 
As you could probably surmise from the opening quote, Bainbridge was not all that keen on the idea, as it violated American dignity and sovereignty to have a ship of the U.S. Navy sailing on a mission as ordered by the Algerine Day and under the Algerine flag. The problem with this, however, is that Bainbridge and the George Washington were far away from home and surrounded by the shore artillery of the harbor of Algiers, not to mention the Algerine Navy. After conferring with the U.S. Consul, Bainbridge agreed and gave up control of his ship to the Algerines. Bainbridge wrote this letter, which was printed in the National Intelligencer newspaper back in Washington in May 1801 in an effort to defend his decision. But Americans back in the United States would question Bainbridge's resolve and dignity. Frustrations with foreign affairs were not reserved to Bainbridge and Americans in the Mediterranean in 1800, however. It's been a few episodes since we checked in with the U.S. Peace Commission in Paris, episode 2.18 by my count. This was partially to catch us up on other events and partially because the negotiations were slow to begin. Though First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte had been quick to name his commissioners, the chief commissioner on the French side, Napoleon's brother Joseph, came down with, quote, an unspecified illness of several weeks' duration. Finally, though, the two sides were able to hold their first meeting on April 2nd. Somewhere around this time, though, the American commissioners discovered that something was missing from their counterparts' credentialing documents, namely, the express authority to make a treaty with the U.S. Suspecting this to be a delaying tactic of the type that French Foreign Minister Talleyrand had previously deployed to confound the first peace commission, they immediately demanded a redress, but asserted that they would be willing to continue negotiations for the time being with, quote, a ministerial declaration of the French government's intention to conclude the negotiating process with a treaty. As a sign that the French consulate government was far more serious about concluding a treaty than the French directory government ever was, the first consul quickly acted before a week was out to, quote, authorize his agents to negotiate as well as to sign and conclude whatever shall appear to them necessary to bring about the perfect reestablishment of good harmony. Despite this, the negotiations shortly devolved into deadlock. As historian Ralph Adams Brown notes, quote, it soon became apparent that agreement would be difficult. Each delegation had its precise instructions. The U.S. government had instructed its envoys, quote, to press for a claims board to settle on the amount France was to pay for commercial damages, as well as to recognize Congress's nullification of the previous Franco-American treaties of 1778 and 1788, and to insist that any special privileges that had previously been granted to French consuls under the 1788 treaty were rescinded. These aims and conditions were made known to the French in writing on April 7th. Though unstated to the French, the U.S. envoys were also expressly forbidden from making a new military alliance with France. The French envoys, meanwhile, had been urged, quote, to establish friendly relations with the United States, to foster American involvement on the side of France against England, and to draw up a new treaty in which the United States would go on record as supporting the concept of neutral rights commonly held by the small European neutrals. They were also instructed by their government to have the U.S. envoys reaffirm the 1778 and 1788 treaties, agree to retain the special rights of French consuls in the U.S., quote, and to gain any other possible advantages. Rock meet hard place. For a month, the delegations went back and forth. Then, the negotiations went into a lull due to various factors. First, Talleyrand fell ill 
which meant that the French commissioners were at an impasse to get additional instructions from him as needed. Napoleon then had his focus diverted to Italy as Austrian forces attacked the Cisalpine Republic in northern Italy and drove back French forces into a siege in Genoa. Napoleon went personally to the front to direct the troops, again delaying the ability of the French delegation to respond. Joseph Bonaparte even went to Italy at one point to deliver an in-person report on the state of the Franco-American negotiations to the First Consul, which meant that there could be no full meetings of the two diplomatic teams in his absence. Meanwhile, on the American side, William Vance Murray fell ill with what he described as a quote-unquote consumptive illness. The delay in negotiations from May 8th until July 15th were particularly troublesome to the Americans, as they realized that their ability or failure to secure a treaty could impact the outcome of the upcoming presidential election back home. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Speaking of the presidential election, Another player was readying to have an influence on the result of that contest as well. To describe Alexander Hamilton as a malcontent in July 1800 is perhaps an understatement. By that point, his military service was at an end. After one final review of his troops at Scotch Plains in New Jersey on May 22nd, Hamilton's forces of the new army had been demobilized in mid-June, and Hamilton himself wrote to Secretary of War Samuel Dexter on July 2nd that, quote, I consider my military agency as having ceased and closed up his headquarters for good. By this point, he had been corresponding with the ousted cabinet members, Timothy Pickering and James McHenry, for months to gather information from them that might point some collusion between Adams and Jefferson against what he considered to be the true Federalist cause, which was, of course, his cause. However, Hamilton wouldn't just stop with former cabinet members. Despite any suspicions Adams might harbor about him, Hamilton's hand-picked successor at the Treasury Department, Oliver Walcott Jr., remained in office. Likely because, unlike his former colleague Pickering, Walcott had actually made an effort to ingratiate himself to the president. This did not mean, however, that Walcott was a supporter of Adams. Far from it. Thus, when Hamilton wrote to Walcott on July 1st, seeking any information he could provide, quote, of the facts which denote unfitness in Mr. Adams, Walcott responded that he would, quote, readily furnish the statement you desire from a firm conviction that the affairs of this government will not only be ruined, but that the disgrace will attach to the federal party if they permit the re-election of Mr. Adams. Walcott readily let the venom spit out of his pen as he wrote that, quote, nothing is more disgusting to me than the praise bestowed upon the president for his wise and sincere pursuit of peace, according to the example of General Washington. Walcott told Hamilton that, quote, I shall ever believe that the last mission to France was by the president considered as a game of diplomacy and that it was his intention to gain popularity at home by appearing to be desirous of peace while he exhibited his talents as a great statesman by outwitting the French in negotiation. Armed with information provided by cabinet members present and past, 
Hamilton would set to work on a statement attacking Adams. He felt that he needed to start making the urgency of the situation known in Federalist circles as he had taken a trip through New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island in June and had come away pessimistic about the prospects of throwing support towards Charles Coatsworth Pinckney in the Electoral College to replace Adams with Pinckney at the top of the ticket. However, before he could complete his anti-Adams statement, Hamilton would find himself attacked in the press once more. The Aurora printed an article on July 12th accusing Hamilton, quote, of having devised a corrupt system of controlling the press and government employees while in office, and, in an allusion to the Reynolds affair, mocked him as, quote, the morally chaste and virtuous head of the Treasury Department. Hamilton wrote to Walcott on August 3rd that he was tempted to sue the Aurora for slander and asserted that, quote, I'm in a very belligerent humor. His belligerency, before being turned on the Aurora, had already found a target in the president himself. Two days prior, on August 1st, Hamilton sent a letter to Adams that went as follows. Quote, Sir, it has been repeatedly mentioned to me that you have, on different occasions, asserted the existence of a British faction in this country, embracing a number of leading or influential characters of the federal party, as usually denominated, and that you have sometimes named me, at other times plainly alluded to me, as one of this description of persons. And I have likewise been assured that of late some of your warm adherents, for electioneering purposes, have employed a corresponding language. I must, sir, take it for granted that you cannot have made such assertions or insinuations without being willing to avow them and to assign the reasons to a party who may conceive himself injured by them. I therefore trust that you will not deem it improper that I apply directly to yourself to ascertain from you, in reference to your own declarations, whether the information I have received has been correct or not, and if correct, what are the grounds upon which you have founded the suggestion? Let it never be said that Hamilton was afraid of making confrontational moves. Little did Hamilton know that Adams was already at a low ebb. As he wrote to Secretary of State John Marshall on July 31st, the president believed that, quote, there are reasons to conjecture that the French government may be inclined to explore all the resources of their diplomatic skill to protract the negotiation. As was the concern of the diplomats on the Peace Commission, so too Adams felt that his re-election hinged on a successful conclusion of a new and favorable peace treaty with France. However, given the freedom of communication back and forth across the Atlantic between Democratic Republicans and their friends in France, quote, there is no reason to doubt that the French government is flattered with full assurances of a change at the next election, which will be more favorable to their views. Adams had reason to fear that re-election might be out of the cards for him. Returning home to Quincy, he found himself feeling increasingly isolated. As noted by historian Noble Cunningham, that summer, quote, Boston Federalist leaders did not make their accustomed calls at Quincy. Meanwhile, Massachusetts arch-federalist critics of Adams, such as Fisher Ames and George Cabot, and that was known collectively as the Essex Junto, would criticize Adams' supporters for emphasizing Adams' public service during the Revolutionary War, with Ames asserting that the efforts, quote, to make the man of 1775 the man of 1800 were futile. If Adams could not even count on the support of Federalists in Massachusetts, what were his chances of securing support elsewhere? Meanwhile, the vice president had departed from Philadelphia in mid-May, and 
After a trip to Richmond, where he stayed with Governor James Monroe, Jefferson had been working away through correspondence from Monticello while maintaining the veneer that his focus was entirely on the management of his plantation and other matters of rural life. As noted by Cunningham, Jefferson had been working for a while to urge on Democratic-Republican newspaper writers and pamphleteers, including, but not limited to, James Callender, who we last discussed in episode 2.20. Jefferson's encouragement was not just in terms of sentiment, but at least in the case of Callender, he provided financial inducement to keep up the attack on the Adams administration and the promotion of Jefferson and the Democratic-Republican cause. By August, Adams was finding himself assaulted on all sides. And then, here comes the letter from Hamilton. Whether by intentional design as part of an election scheme, or in a more genuine focus on the affairs of state, Adams did not reply to Hamilton, and his correspondence of the time, rather than using his pen to recruit electioneering efforts on his behalf, dealt more with the latest news, or lack thereof, from France. So just what had been going on with those negotiations anyway? During the lull in the negotiations, the American commissioners had not said idle. Instead, William Vans Murray managed to secure a private conversation with French Commissioner Pierre Rodeau on May 23rd. The two focused their discussion on the previous privilege that had been granted to the French for the use of American ports and French objections that this right had now been given to the British through Jay's Treaty. Murray stressed that the Americans would not abrogate Jay's Treaty nor could they agree to a revival of the previous Franco-American treaties. Jay's treaty also granted the right of use of American ports exclusively to the British, so the Americans couldn't even agree on a clause to allow equal privileges to the French. At face value, it seemed that the two diplomatic teams were at an impasse. But this conversation was crucial in helping each side to understand the limitations within which they were operating. When the negotiations resumed on July 11th at Joseph Bonaparte's home, the two sides would find themselves at a stalemate, with the French refusing, under orders from Napoleon, to accept anything less than equal rights with Great Britain. Napoleon himself reiterated this demand at a levy on July 21st. William Vans Murray's skill as a diplomat, however, kept the negotiations going during the difficult July days in both the official settings and his unofficial discussions with Rotorou while also conducting research to explore various, quote, hopeful avenues of compromise. Finally, late on July 24th, Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth was called from his bed by French agent Louis-André Pichon, who questioned Ellsworth about the possibility of the American delegates, quote, agreeing to revive Article 17, i.e. one of the exclusive port privileges in the previous Franco-American treaty, merely to the extent of according most favored nation treatment to French privateers and prizes. Ellsworth thought the proposal worth considering, and thus, the next day, consulted with Murray about the proposal. Again, the trained diplomat proved himself an asset, as he realized this was a feint by French Foreign Minister Talleyrand to see what was possible, as Talleyrand had been ready to concede Article 17 previously if the French could get equal rights with Great Britain. That demand was not here, but the French had agreed to a settlement of the indemnity claims that were a must-have for the American side. The French were shifting, and Murray saw room for a compromise. Thus, he set to work on, quote, a legal case for restoring as much of the old treaties as would satisfy France that she was receiving a quid pro quo for indemnities. As Murray would lay out for his colleagues, despite the objections that restoring some of the rights granted under the old Franco-American treaties would violate the Jay Treaty, quote, 
Jay's treaty dated from 1794, at a time when London had accepted the exclusiveness of the French-American engagements. Britain could not, therefore, claim treaty rights resulting from a Franco-American dispute if, subsequently, France and the United States chose to recall a status quo under which Britain had not possessed those rights. Basically, since the Franco-American treaties had been in effect when the Jay Treaty was signed, they could use some of the same articles from those treaties to build a new one. American envoy William R. Davey, however, would argue that, despite Murray's argument, the British would be upset, quote, to lose the recently acquired and exclusive port rights. Murray went back to research and before long was able to find precedents in British diplomacy where they, quote, had revived old treaties to the detriment of parties to newer ones. Nevertheless, his work would seem fruitless when, on August 11th, the French envoys said that either the Americans would agree to revive the former treaties entirely in exchange for indemnity payments to the Americans, or France would insist on an equal port privileges status with Great Britain in exchange for a treaty, but the treaty would not have any agreement for France to pay indemnities. Though it seemed that there was no chance for their mission to succeed, Murray wrote to U.S. Minister to Prussia John Quincy Adams on August 20th that even the previously reluctant Ellsworth was, quote, heart and soul occupied to make it succeed. So is Davy, so am I. The American envoys began to focus their efforts on pushing a proposal by Ellsworth for a new treaty which contained most of the provisions of the former treaties, except for the provisions in Article 11 of the Treaty of Alliance, that the U.S. and France would guarantee mutual protections to each other's possessions in the Western Hemisphere, quote-unquote, forever, and the aforementioned Article 17 of the Treaty of Amity and Commerce, that France would have, quote, full and exclusive privateer and prize privileges in American ports. In exchange for these two provisions being dropped, the envoys offered reimbursement to France to the tune of $2 million, with the U.S. being given seven years to pay this sum, during which time France would not request anything more than most favored nation access to American ports. The French would come back with a willingness to accept the lesser port privilege status, with the condition that, if at the end of the seven years' time, the full provisions from Article 17 were not restored, either through the U.S. not making the offer or of France not accepting them, quote, France would be relieved of all obligation to pay indemnities. This condition was a non-starter, as the American envoys could not agree to a treaty in which the French could skip out on paying the indemnities. Murray had a series of meetings with Rotorou, some alone, while in others, Davy or Pichon would attend. Murray and Rotorou would discuss possible scenarios for compromise. The Americans offered to have the U.S. government pay American claims up to $1.6 million, then France would be liable for claims above that amount. Rotorou rejected France paying the indemnities at all and countered that France would accept the provisions under the disputed articles being excluded from the new treaty if the U.S. would pay all of the American claims. Murray dismissed this, and despite all of their work, it seemed that they had hit yet another impassable logjam. With time drawing ever closer to the election back home, the American envoys finally saw one more option before them. On September 13th, they proposed to the French envoys that, instead of a full treaty, they instead agreed to a temporary convention which would formally end hostilities between the two nations, agree to the return of any vessels that had been captured but not condemned, 
and set out the terms of, quote, future maritime practices in order to avoid the seizure of any more vessels by either side. While not achieving everything they had set out to do, this convention would bring France and the U.S. back from the brink of war and create some breathing room for future negotiations to take place in order to resolve the remaining issues. Though there would be some further back and forth before the signing ceremony at 2 a.m. on the morning of October 1st, the Convention of Mortfontaine, so named for Joseph Bonaparte's estate, where First Consul Napoleon formally ratified the agreement a couple of days after the signing, would be seen as a triumph on both sides. However, the victory had not come without its cost. Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth had been confined to his bed for some time due to, quote, a severe attack of kidney stones, and it would soon be commented by Federalists in the U.S. that, quote, Mr. Ellsworth's health is, I fear, destroyed. Meanwhile, both William Vans Murray and his wife Charlotte would suffer from ill health after the negotiations ended. Would their efforts meet with approval across the Atlantic and aid in Mr. Adams's re-election? Only time would tell as Ellsworth and Davy bid their farewells to the Murrays on October 4th and boarded a carriage to La Havre, where they were intent on setting sail back to the United States as soon as possible. Before the envoys left Europe, the treaty would have an impact on the leadership in one branch of the American government, but not necessarily the branch the envoys would have expected when their negotiations began. In La Havre on October 16th, Oliver Ellsworth would write out his letter of resignation as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and his plans to remain for the winter in the south of France to recover his health. While Davy prepares to carry this news back across the pond, let's take this opportunity to hop back across ourselves to get caught up on developments in America. Turning back to the main subject of last episode, though it had been thwarted, the ramifications of Gabriel's rebellion were continuing to reverberate. As those accused of being involved in the plot were rounded up, the imaginations of the white planter class ran wild. James Callender wrote to Jefferson that, had it not been discovered, the plans of the insurrectionists, quote, could hardly have failed of success. They envisioned how the enslaved seeking their freedom would have, quote, taken possession of the houses and white women. As described by historian Douglas Egerton, an atmosphere, quote, of white fear and sexual paranoia filled Tidewater, Virginia, and public officials scrambled to respond. Governor James Monroe had to determine where resources should be sent in case of any further trouble, and, in some cases, had to deny requests from local governments that, though there was no indication that the plot had expanded to their area, wanted arms for defense. By September 9th, nearly 30 enslaved individuals were in custody, and, as were the laws of the state, they were brought before the special state courts of Oye and Termine. As Governor Monroe had predicted in his letter to Jefferson of the 9th, the first day of the trial saw six enslaved individuals tried, and all six were sentenced to death by hanging. The first four were hung the next morning, shortly after sunrise, and they would be followed in short order by others. The trials would continue on through September and into October, and as the trials and hangings continued, so too did the arrest and the revelations about more of the details of the plot. Not only did it come to light that there were lists kept of conspirators, but also, despite efforts by Monroe and judicial authorities to suppress the information, that two Frenchmen were involved. However, for a few weeks, it looked like they would not be able to catch the person who had been identified by many as the chief leader of the plot. 
Gabriel would evade discovery for two weeks and manage to make his way to the bank of the James River four miles south of Richmond. Though Egerton was not able to find a reason given for his actions, Gabriel attempted to gain passage on the three-mast schooner Mary. He told the captain that he was a freeman headed to Norfolk, but not only could he not provide papers proving his freed status, a couple of the enslaved people aboard the ship, including one named Billy, told the captain who Gabriel was. Despite this information, as well as the knowledge that transporting any, quote, Negro or mulatto out of the state without appearing before a local magistrate would result in a $500 fine for him, as well as the possibility of further legal difficulties if Gabriel really was the leader of a slave insurrection, Captain Taylor ordered the ship to set sail to the lower Chesapeake. However, when they reached Norfolk, Billy left the ship, sought out the local sheriff, and told him where to find Gabriel in order to claim the $300 reward out for his capture, which Billy planned to use to buy his freedom. In short order, both Gabriel and Captain Taylor would be arrested, and though Billy would end up being awarded $50 for his efforts in Gabriel's apprehension, it would prove to be too little to purchase his freedom. Though Taylor would ultimately be released, Gabriel would be transported back to Richmond to be tried. His arrival back in Richmond would not be without incident. When his ship landed in mid-afternoon, word spread quickly that Gabriel was on board, and before long, quote, a great cloud of blacks as well as whites gathered round Gabriel, more than enough to free him from the grip of the constables. Governor Monroe was on hand to see the arrival of the plot's leading organizer for himself, and quickly issued orders, quote, to form a guard of 15 or 20 citizens to take Gabriel under its care to the penitentiary. Just as soon as this small revolt began, it was quashed, and Gabriel was placed in captivity once more. On October 6th, after numerous other alleged conspirators were tried, quote, the property of Thomas Henry Prosser, as Gabriel was considered by the court, was brought before the magistrates to face charges of, quote, conspiracy, and insurrection. Gabriel would witness people that he had worked with in the plans, including Ben, one of the earliest conspirators, testified to Gabriel's central role in the planned rebellion, or revolution as it was framed in some of the testimony. Historian Douglas Egerton describes that, quote, to the audible sound of uncomfortable revolutionaries squirming in their seats, Woolfolk, one of the witnesses, explained how Gabriel was to carry their flag on the night of the rising. It was to bear the oddly familiar slogan of death or liberty. Despite the appeal to the patriotism of the magistrates, they pronounced that, quote, it is the unanimous opinion of the court that the said Negro man's slave Gabriel is guilty of the crime with which he stands accused, and for the same, that he be hanged by the neck and shall he be dead, and that execution of this sentence be done and performed on him tomorrow at the usual time and place of execution. At Gabriel's request, the magistrates delayed the carrying out of his sentence until October 10th so that he could die on the same day as some of his compatriots who had been enslaved by Thomas Prosser. The morning of October 10th arrived, and four of the seven sentenced to hang were driven in a cart, quote, from the jail toward the clearing near Prosser's tavern. The tavern was close enough to Brookfield, for the families of the condemned to witness the execution of their husbands, sons, and fathers. Gabriel would be the last to hang that day, and his would be carried out at the town gallows in Richmond. 
again from Egerton, quote, because he was hanged alone, he was denied the small comfort of being executed by the side of one of his fellows. All in all, from the beginning of the trials on September 9th till the last one in early November, 27 people would die for their role in Gabriel's rebellion. I feel I should note here that, though news of the involvement of the two Frenchmen would go public, Cressy and Bedenhurst would not be tried, much less punished for their involvement in the plot. Given the political realities of the moment, and the Democratic Republicans' known favoritism for the French, Monroe and other allies worked to downplay their involvement. In fact, as October wore on, the overall furor behind the response to Gabriel's rebellion ebbed. Egerton wrote that, from the primary evidence he examined in his research, it looks like the executions tapered off after Gabriel's due to the high financial costs that was being imposed on the state budget by them. Virginia law, which, as stated last episode, did not hold slave owners liable for any crimes committed by those they enslaved, also demanded the compensation of slave owners for any of those they enslaved who were executed by the state authorities. With the execution of Gabriel, the bill to the state already stood at $8,899.91, not to mention the cost of the militia, which was already at $5,431. Add in the cost of keeping the prisoners under guard until their trial and sentencing, and Virginia's annual budget of just over $377,000 was ill-equipped to deal with these unanticipated expenses. Rather than hang many of the remaining accused, they would instead be sentenced to be transported out of the state, which meant that, while the owners would be compensated for the loss of those they had enslaved, the enslaved individuals could be sold to a slave trader and the state compensated financially, while at the same time getting the prisoners off of their hands. Unfortunately, as I stated last episode, we've got plenty more of these shameful moments to discuss in the future. For now, though, let us turn back to the realm of government and politics. Politicos would not miss the opportunity to make political hay out of Gabriel's rebellion. The Gazette of the United States would report on the slave uprising and assert that it, quote, appears to be organized on the true French plan. New England papers would quip that, quote, if anything will correct and bring to repentance old hardened southern sinners in Jacobinism, it must be an insurrection of their slaves. Meanwhile, being in prison would not stop James Callender from adding his two cents in as he wrote that there was, quote, only one white man in the nation evil enough to conceive of such a project as Gabriel's Rebellion. It was none other than Alexander Hamilton himself. This dubious claim reveals some of the concern amongst Democratic Republicans in Virginia that, despite the state's obvious leanings in their favor, Gabriel's Rebellion may have tipped some support to the Federalist cause. Virginia was, after all, one of the few states that chose their electors by popular vote. Though the Democratic-Republican-led state legislature had changed the rules for choosing electors from being by district to a winner-take-all contest, which was believed would favor their party, there were still concerns given recent Federalist political gains at the polls. On the Federalist side, as was likely the intention from the appointment, Secretary of State John Marshall would prove himself to be useful both in governance and in electioneering. For the latter first, Marshall would work from Washington to coordinate the efforts of the Virginia Federalist State Committee. Meanwhile, he'd also busy himself with the many responsibilities of the State Department. As noted by Marshall biographer Gene Edward Smith, quote, In 1800, the Department of State was the focal point of domestic as well as foreign policy, and the Department's duties included granting patents and copyrights, taking the census, 1800 was a census year, 
recording land grants throughout the vast federal domain, supervising the mint, which remained in Philadelphia and which, as a matter of administrative curiosity, fell under the jurisdiction of the State Department rather than the Treasury, printing and distributing government documents, and governing the territories of the United States. The administration of justice also came under the department's purview, since the position of attorney general was purely advisory to the president. In short, the secretary of state, in addition to his diplomatic and political duties, was responsible for all the activities of the federal government except those involving the treasury, the military, and the post office. Marshall was assisted in these myriad tasks by a chief clerk and seven other people, bringing to a total of nine the entire staff of the department. Adams had added to Marshall's burden by placing on him the responsibility of, quote, supervising the work of the district commissioners laying out the federal city in his absence. Because he would have been twiddling his thumbs otherwise, right, Mr. President? In terms of foreign affairs, while waiting for word from France and growing ever more concerned about the state of affairs in the Mediterranean, one of Marshall's key contributions was in directing the response to what Gene Edward Smith describes as, quote, an unraveling diplomatic accord that threatened to destroy the amity between the U.S. and Great Britain. Beyond just the swinging of the pendulum of improving relations with the French, another reason for the worsening of relations with Britain is something that we've already mentioned. In episode 2.13, we discussed how the Bilateral Arbitration Commission that had been agreed to by the Jay Treaty in order to settle the claims of British creditors against American citizens had dissolved in July 1799. The situation had still not been resolved when Marshall assumed office, and the American and British governments were locked into a cycle where a proposal was made, months would go by as the proposal was communicated across the Atlantic, and an official response was made only to find that the response was a rejection of said proposal. In late July 1800, Marshall received word from U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King of a new proposal from the British that the U.S. government just send a lump sum payment to London and the British government would settle everything with the creditors. The proposal resonated with Marshall, and not in a good way. During his tenure as one of the members of the First Peace Commission to France, that had been one of Talleyrand's proposals to them, that a payment be made to the directory with the excuse that it was to reimburse French creditors when, in fact, it would just be supporting the French government. Marshall, though he didn't make any official recommendation when he passed the news along to Adams on July 21st, did remark that the French might see this settlement in much the same light, especially considering that Talleyrand was back in office as French foreign minister. Despite these concerns, both Adams and Marshall would come to the same conclusion that they should agree to the settlement, and Marshall sent King instructions in mid-August to try to negotiate the amount down to no more than, quote, one million sterling, but to pursue the proposal. The other major issue between the two nations was the continued impressment of American seamen into the British Royal Navy. Though Marshall would not be able to resolve this issue during his tenure, he did send instructions to King on September 20th, which laid out the administration's policy of continued neutrality between Britain and France, and asserted that, despite the recent tensions with the French, quote, we still pursue peace. We will embrace it if it can be obtained without violating our national honor or our national faith. But we will reject, without hesitation, all proposals which may compromise the one or the other. The United States might be neutral, but this was an active neutrality. The United States would not have its sovereignty impeded upon without consequences. Speaking of consequences, 
It's time to discuss someone who has been a thorn in the administration's side for some time now, but who just hasn't merited a special mention until we're getting into the heart of the election season. In episode 2.15, I briefly mentioned Benjamin Franklin Bosch's successor at the Philadelphia Aurora, William Duane. Now, I'd like to take a moment to get a little more acquainted with Mr. Duane before talking about the impact he was having in the fall of 1800. Duane had been born in the American colonies, but had, quote, spent his youth in Ireland, England, and India, where he founded the Calcutta World. Duane was forced out of India due to his fervent expression of support for the French Revolution and returned to the U.S. in 1796, where Bosch brought him on board at the Aurora. After Bosch's death from yellow fever in 1798, Duane not only assumed control of the Aurora, but also married Bosch's widow, Margaret. Duane had already found himself in the administration's crosshairs starting in February 1799 when he was, according to Jeffrey Stone, quote, indicted on trumped-up charges that he had willfully and maliciously stirred up a seditious riot by circulating a petition calling for the repeal of the Alien Friends Act. He was quickly acquitted by the jury, but a few months later, Duane would yet again find himself under indictment for claiming in the Aurora, quote, that the British exercised undue and improper influence in the State Department. This time, President Adams would order the charges to be dropped, quote, when Duane revealed that he had an authenticated letter from John Adams making the very same charge. The election year of 1800 would provide Duane with his most serious challenge. In January, Senator James Ross, Federalist from Pennsylvania, introduced a bill in the Senate calling for the Special Committee of 13 to decide disputed elections of presidential electors, as discussed in Episode 2.19. Democratic-Republican senators leaked a copy of the bill to Duane, and Duane promptly printed it in the Aurora. Now, at the time, there was much more secrecy in the deliberations of the Senate, and thus, Duane faced charges of making, quote, false, scandalous, and malicious assertions that demean the reputation of the Senate. Rather than acting through the federal judiciary, the Senate sought to convict and possibly deport Duane by establishing a new Senate committee to investigate and impose punishment as needed. Duane declined an invitation to appear in order to defend himself and instead went into hiding. Despite this situation, as noted by James Roger Sharp, quote, although hardly in the same league with Calendar as a master of outrageously caustic writing, William Duane was nonetheless more influential as a critic of the Adams administration and a journalist substantially more important in the development of a Republican opposition press. Duane would work throughout the year, not just in writing and editing for the Aurora, but also in facilitating, quote, the development of an informal network of Republican newspapers. Duane would not be the only one using print to take on Adams, but we'll hold off on that one until next time. On October 13th, John Adams would set off by coach from his home in Quincy, Massachusetts, southward bound. His disappointment with his son Charles, as we discussed back in episode 2.17, had not subsided, and thus John did not pause in his journey to visit with him or his family. One has to wonder just how much the president thought about the present political situation on his journey to the new federal city. What would he find waiting for him there? Would he win re-election? Be relegated to the vice presidency again? are turned out altogether. Would there finally be news of a peace with France? And what about Hamilton and Jefferson? As much as it seems that Adams regularly thought about scenarios, one has to wonder if he really could have envisioned what lay ahead once he stepped foot in Washington, D.C. Believe you me, 
the new capital city would prove to be a different world in more ways than one for Adams and for the nation, as we'll see next time in an episode I'd like to call The Double-Edged Sword. Until then, thanks so much to Neil for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out the Assassinations podcast. You'll be glad you did. You can find the link along with the source notes to this episode at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. It's getting about that time where I'm looking for questions for the Q&A episode to wrap up our series on the Adams presidency. So if you have any burning questions about Adams, his time in office, his cabinet, his family, the era in which he lived, or anything else that I either haven't had a chance to talk about or that you'd like to know more about, send them my way. I'll even answer questions about podcasting or if you have some questions about yours truly. Whatever the case may be, there are numerous ways to send those on. You can email them to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can reach out via social media. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. I'm planning to record this episode in late June or July 2019, so get those questions in before then. For folks listening to this in the future, you can send your questions on as well. They may not make it into the Q&A episode, but I may make an episode of my video series about it. That's right. There's a video series on Vimeo, which you can find on the website or by going to vimeo.com forward slash presidencies. There are two episodes up already as of May 2019, and I've got an interview with a special guest coming up next. If you like the work I'm doing, there are numerous ways that you can support this podcast. Tuning in and sharing information about the podcast with others is always a big help. You can also leave a rating and review on iTunes, which will help others find this podcast. I also have a list of books available on the website that would be helpful for upcoming research if you're so inclined to contribute to that effort. However you choose to help, I greatly appreciate your support. This podcast has been a grassroots effort from the beginning, and I'm looking forward to seeing where Team Presidencies goes from here. Thanks again, and until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.